I V M. In recent decades, hardworking and irreverent researchers, teachers, and writers, women and men, have revealed that making diverse women visible exposes the actual workings of international politics. Women as Chinese businessmen's mistresses, women sewing clothes for Tommy Hilfiger, and washing pesticides off Chiquita's bananas. Women married to CIA operatives. Women working in discos around military bases. Women auditioning for the Miss World contest. Women scrubbing floor in Saudi Arabia, and women lobbying delegates in the corridors of the UN. They observe, they cope, they calculate, they strategize, and sometimes they organize. Here is what I've learned from taking these women seriously. If we pay sustained attention to each and all of these unheadlined women, we will become smarter about this world. Smarter than a lot of mainstream experts. Smarter. I've thought a lot about what it means to become smarter. I don't think it means simply to become more clever, more facile, more hip. It sometimes means to become more cautious. It certainly means to become more nuanced in one's explanations. And nuance does not mean vague. It means capable of describing with clarity the multiple relationships at work and their consequences. To become smarter in the feminist sense of smarter, one therefore has to constantly stretch one's gender curiosity. Asking where are the women won't necessarily reap instant or superficial rewards. In fact, one might feel as though one is risking one's status as a serious person when asking where the women are and why they are there, who is benefiting from them being there, and what they think about being there. One's mentor, editor, or boss may make it clear that he or she considers spending one's time pursuing these gender questions a waste. Becoming smarter in this feminist sense will not make us more comfortable. We are likely to start wondering about our own complicity in the makings of this world's dysfunctions, its inequalities, its abuses and injustices. For we are not simply readers and questioners standing above or outside what we are exploring. We are living in this world, even if we don't think of ourselves as members of an elite. Although, if we are able to read this page, we are indeed among the world's privileged. Our ideas and actions are helping shape this world. We have our own relationships to all the women whose lives we are trying to understand. This should stroke the fires of our feminist curiosity, but it should also make us uneasy. In making women visible, I've discovered one turns a bright light on men as men. It has been feminist-informed investigations of international politics that have yielded the most valuable insights into complex politics of masculinities. That is plural, but the meanings assigned to different ways for a boy or a man to demonstrate his manliness are not merely multiple. They usually are unequal and often rivals to each other. Disparaging certain kinds of feminities is common fodder in these rankings and contests. This is a key motivation for anyone exploring international politics of masculinities to adopt an explicitly feminist curiosity. All the men and women who have tried to make us genuinely smarter about international politics have revealed that what is international is far broader than mainstream experts assume, and that what is political reaches well beyond the public square. Sometimes taking these two new understandings on board has made my head spin. But it has also energized me. Redrawing the map of international politics has made the investigation into and the conversations about these politics a lot more lively. 
for me, that has been one of the genuine joys of being part of this collaborative, transnational, feminist, exploratory journey. Many more people, certainly a lot more women, are now in the conversation. They are adding their stories, their experiences, puzzles and findings to that conversation. The windows and doors have been thrown wide open. Well, they should be. Hi, you're listening to States of Anarchy, a podcast on global affairs and foreign policy. I'm your host, Hamsani Hariharan. What you just heard is an excerpt from the preface of a book called Bananas, Beaches and Bases, Making Feminist Sense of International Politics by Cynthia Onlo. The book changes the way you look at the world and the roles that we play in it. And I highly recommend you read it. International relations is considered the last bastion for gender issues. When I started out in the field, I was often advised, don't be a woman working on women in international relations. But how could I separate the political from the personal? How could my identity as a woman not affect the way I look at the world? How should we even look at gender in international relations? What questions should we ask? What lenses can we use? My guest for today is Dr. Swarna Rajagopalan. Swarna is a political scientist, writer, consultant and social entrepreneur. She is the founder and director of Pragna, the Pragna Trust, a non-profit organization based in Chennai, which undertakes research, public education and networking on issues related to peace, justice and security. Swarna has worked extensively on issues related to gender and on today's podcast, we're going to discuss how some of these dynamics play out in international politics and in India. But before we go to the conversation, let's take a short break. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another great week on the IBM Podcast Network. You know, the greatest place on earth to work on. If you're interested in working with us, please do send us your resume at careers at indusvox.com. We're looking for people in business roles. We're looking for people in creative roles. We're looking for audio engineers, graphic designers, all kinds of things. So please do apply. Also wanted to ask everybody, please tell a friend about your favorite podcast on the IVM network. We really do depend on your word of mouth. You are our biggest ambassadors and we'd really, really appreciate all of your support. Also, if you are enjoying what you listen to, take a screenshot, tag us on social media and we will repost that. On the scene and the unseen, Amit Verma is joined by journalist Namita Bhandare to talk about the job crisis for women in India. On the final episode of the Rani Screwwala podcast, we do a Q&A where Rani answers questions sent in from listeners as well as other podcast hosts from the IVM network. On Marvel's Lost and Found, Avanti and Zen talk to therapist Ishita Pateria about eating disorders and how to deal with them. On the Edges and Sledges Cricket podcast, Ashwin and DJ are discussing the women's and men's ashes, the slate of cricketers retiring, India's performance versus the West Indies, Zoni's contributions to the Indian Army, and a lot more. Last week, we released the season finale of the first season of Equity Sahiya. Tune into the show to listen to fascinating and insightful conversations about equity and various sectors in India you could invest in. The last two episodes feature special guest Ramdev Agarwal, co-founder of the Motilal Oswal Group. Check those out to learn more about his inspirational journey. This show was brought to you by the Motilal Oswal Asset Management Company. On IBM Likes, IBM staffers Abbas Saishri and debutant Antarik sit down to discuss their go-to pop culture during the monsoon. On our Kannada podcast, Thale Harate, Professor Zabiullah and Shant Kumar Patil talk to Pavan and Surya about the Dakni language and its history. On 9XM Soundcast, host Eva Bhatt is joined by an Indian-Canadian singer, Jonita Gandhi. She started her music career by singing covers on YouTube and they discuss her journey from Canada to Mumbai, people who supported her and how one should deal with trolls and negative comments on social media. On Paperback, hosts Satyajit Roy and Racheta Sharma are joined by the writer and creative editor Himali Kothari. She discusses the process of meticulously writing and rewriting a story. And with that, let's get you on with your show. 
Hi, Swarna. Welcome to States of Anarchy. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. All right. So, in any conflict, women and children are the most adversely affected. But it's not something that we look at a lot in international relations. How would you place women in this canon? Uh, in the tradition, in the canon of international relations, till about the nineteen seventies, women were actually invisible. Uh, this is the discipline, the academic discipline of international relations, which actually began with the writing of diplomatic histories. Women were invisible, although they were. If you look at contemporary diplomatic histories that are documenting the work of women through the ages. they were active they were doing diplomatic work but they were completely invisible in the canon that one would have studied in a post war international relations program in a sense people were completely invisible we had these um airtight state units that somehow mystically interacted with each other and that was what we based all of our understandings and assumptions on the idea that states are black boxes the states are black boxes uh rational actors realists etc mm. etc so the introduction of women into that agenda i would say dates back to the late 80s really although again you, you we have to bear in mind that uh for some of us when you say international relations there is the academic discipline and then there is the world of international relations and in the world of international relations it's not that women were absent they had not been absent in the diplomatic work about which histories were written that effaced their work and they were they were not absent in the international relations of the league of the formation of the united nations of the united nations years in the post war period um women and their activism their transnational activism was definitely part of the narrative of changing united nations discourse and through that changing global discourse and development of norms around development um around rights and so on so it's just what we have been choosing to see over the decades and in the last 30 years we've seen the introduction of women first into those narratives mm. initially appearing as victims of international mm. relations events and then emerging as possible solution seekers now we've learned over the years to see their agency and to map it and we're also learning to map their various standpoints as we go so there has been a change i think from about 20 30 years ago till today one difference in the male stream of mm. the discipline <laughs> would really be that uh people can't say that gender doesn't matter at all mm. they might secretly scoff at it but in a public forum it would be very uncool of them to say this is irrelevant material this mm. is not part of the you know this is not just risk to the male at all Yeah that's true you can see the outrage over manuals right these mm-hmm. all male panels where mm-hmm. men are discussing what happens to you know whether it's women as victims or mm-hmm. whatever it is but the idea that they're discussing mm-hmm. these predominantly gendered topics mm-hmm. without any diverse viewpoints mm-hmm. or even the fact that in on social platforms that have no pretense to being radical or progressive mm-hmm. per se 
photographs of all male delegations mm-hmm. negotiating peace, whether it's in Syria or in Afghanistan, go viral immediately. Someone puts a question mark on them and retweets them and everyone is sharing them because there is something patently outrageous about the exclusion of half of humanity, actually more than half. Because what's visible to us is the exclusion of women, mm-hmm. but we're not seeing other gender minorities. We're not seeing other kinds of mm-hmm. minorities. You know, we're just not seeing. That's true. I mean, I think there was this photo project a couple of months back that took a lot of these multilateral forums and things like mm-hmm. that and then took out all the men from it. You know, mm-hmm. whether it was the G20 or mm-hmm. just the UN, the World Bank. So mm-hmm. you have all these photos with which and these are sort of empty rooms. Basically, when you take mm-hmm. the men out, there'll be like five women six women mm-hmm. um but there's also that conference where they had they felt so embarrassed about having only men they photoshopped two women in <laughs> i don't remember where that yeah, was i haven't seen that but that sounds something like someone from international relations would do <laughs> so clearly we've at least generated enough peer pressure for people to feel a little bit guilty okay here's a question hmm. why do we need more women this seems like a very I know, basic question at heart. But why do you need more women in decision making? Why do you need more women on panels? Because a lot of people argue that with the thing that let's go by merit. You know, let's not say we will have these many women and these many men. Let's say who is the best person for the job and we will just get them. So let's take that question in pieces, okay? okay. Because why do you need more women? Let's start with the simplest thing conference panels. Why do you need more women in academic conversations about anything? Because women represent a particular variety of not even an identical category of a a particular spectrum, a particular variety of human experience that in discussions in the humanities and social sciences must be included for that larger understanding to make any sense. Mm. You know, if I give you half a banana and say it's the full banana. I mean, I'm trying to find a sensible comparison point, but the fact is that the exclusion of human beings is not sensible at all. So it just makes sense to say, we're going to be discussing a problem, Mm. but we're not going to be listening to a whole range of experiences that are relevant to it. Particularly stakeholder experiences. These are not outside experiences. Well, everybody at some level is a stakeholder in any human situation. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So you are not going to listen. You're not going to take into account. You're not going to give voice. You're not going to frame a consensus kind of position or something we can all agree upon. Then it's really kind of a hollow solution to anything. So that's the argument for ACT. And academic spaces are the safest places to experiment. If you have, I'm not even going to deal with the question of merit and Mm. because, I mean, that's clearly a specious argument for any kind of inclusion, you know, Mm. against any kind of inclusion. Mm. Um, If you're really worried, non-meritorious humans will clutter your thinking. An academic space is about the safest place you can include them. Because let's face it, you don't really matter that much. (laughs) Why should they be in the political process? Mm -hmm. Because it matters a whole lot. I mean, these are decisions we're making for all of us. 
And if women are not part of those decisions, let's talk about Afghanistan now. Okay. Because right now, top of my mind, top of many of our minds, is the peace process that is being attempted there. Yes. The so-called peace process, the peace process, the talks with the Taliban, whatever you want to name it. And also going back to just the root of the problem where, you know, the US was sort of saying, oh, women face a terrible time in Afghanistan. Women's rights is such a big problem so the, in Afghanistan. It, given that women's rights were part of the 2001 rhetoric for entering Afghanistan, mm. There is no argument for their exclusion from this round of talks with the mm. Taliban. I mean, right there, one. Afghanistan and the U.S. are both have national action plans for implementing UN Security Council 1325, which mm. means they're mandated to include women in peace processes. So, mm. oh, reason two. Also, the women of Afghanistan have done an incredible job through the Taliban years and thereafter looking out for their own interests, protecting each other, creating shelters, advocating for their rights, doing peace work. Mm. One of the projects I'm really proud to have been a part of was to edit a collection of life stories okay. um, collected in Dari and Pashto by an Afghan organization. And then I got to edit the translations and weave them into a storybook of Peace stories. That sounds the lovely. Amazing women. I mean, they didn't get to study. They stopped at sixth standard. They created sewing circles. And the sewing circles became reading circles. Then they did Quran studies because, mm. you know, then they used the Quran studies to approach religious leaders to talk about peace from within the discourse of yeah. Islam. Um, doctors who would treat militants and their families and then, you know, just gently talk them into surrendering and joining the peace process. This kind of on-the-ground peace work that women have done at great peril, there's one woman in that book that talks about having lost her husband and, you know, one child and being injured, I will not stop this work. Mm. The courage that women have brought to this work that they have done over the last 20, 30 years, why should that not be represented at the table, why shouldn't those voices be heard? What is the sane, what is the humane, what is the ethical argument against their inclusion? I mean, why should I make an argument for their inclusion? Let someone make an argument to me for their exclusion. That's a very powerful statement. First, please tell us the name of your book so that I can link it. Uh, it's actually in the online. It's okay. uh, by an organization called Women Peace Support Organization. Uh, Afghanistan. It's on their website and I'll send you the link. Awesome. We'll attach that in the bio of the episode. Now, here's a question when I think about women in decision making. Do women make decisions differently when compared to men? When you think of positions of power, like prime ministership, for example, then there's the idea that gender is not a variable for decision making. On the other hand, women do have different approaches to solutions. So how do you deal with that? I don't think we can generalize. When you're talking about somebody who's a prime minister or a president, I don't think that's generalizable. I think it depends on the individual mm. and that moment in history and what their reading of their choices are then. But if you take something like, say, Sushma Swaraj's role in the last few years, she was Minister for External Affairs, History will tell us what her actual scope for action or activity was. Mm. But all of us saw what she made of her position and what she made of the platform she had available mm. to possibly become the most accessible MEA mm. that 
I remember, you know. Um, this is something that she brought her temperament, her desire to serve in a particular way. Now, you can say this is not what the MEA is supposed to do. But, you know, what the MEA is supposed to do will change from decade to decade. It will change with technology. It will change with the needs of her constituency, which in this case had expanded to include Pravasi Indians. Mm -hmm. So who is to say what is the proper way to do this? But this was her individual genius that she took the space she had and turned it into something quite creative. Uh, we can't really be certain what an individual woman would do. We can't say across the board that every prime minister who is a woman will do this mm. or do that because I think history tells us that um, women make realist decisions, mm. women make hawkish decisions. Also, I don't think we can essentialize women's attitudes in politics. What we can say is that wherever you lie on a spectrum, now you don't have to come into politics as a pacifist woman, mm. but yeah. you have to come into politics. <laughs> yeah. We want to see women across the political spectrum, mm. across the ideological spectrum. We want to see other gender minorities across mm. the ideological spectrum. That's true. I mean, uh, because something that you often hear is that women are more... Um, amenable to cooperation, more pacifist. And I don't think that's true necessarily. Uh, I think you can have women from, as you said, all over the spectrum. And a lot of them, I don't know. I think women like... are raised to adjust, to cooperate, to put themselves second, to seek mm. consensus, to not confront. But And these are traits that we nurture in female children. Mm. These are desirable behaviors in them. But I don't think there is a naturalness to that. Mm. You know, there are bound. I'm sure there are men who are instinctively cooperators mm. and women who are instinctively assertive. It. I don't think essentialism works. Yeah. And another approach I think would also, when you just look at sort of gender in international relations, would also look at intersectionality. Right? Mm -hmm. The good thing about intersectionality is it gives you uh, new lenses to look at problems in international relations, I think. For example, Dalit feminism or feminism that puts caste at the forefront mm -hmm. could say that, you know, one of the ways that they look at international relations is to say that, you know, you look at national security as also consider violence against caste would mm -hmm. be an essential part of their lens. Mm -hmm. um, so how do you uh, deal with intersectionality, particularly in a field like international relations? I think security studies has moved a little bit further down that road mm -hmm. because uh, while traditional security studies mirrored traditional international relations a great deal, again in the last 20, 30 years, we've uh, played with the field so much, we've challenged assumptions so much that in new critical areas, mm -hmm. uh, specifically now, again, a new mainstream mm. here is human security. We are looking intersectionally. Mm. We are looking at different kinds of security where there's plenty of room to look at um, conflict as being interstate, mm. intercommunity, state versus community, state versus civil society, uh, caste conflict. So, in fact, when we do advocacy around women in peace, mm one of the ways in which we address 
the challenge of making it relevant in places like Chennai, which mm. is supposedly at peace, mm. is to also look at structural conflict. Mm. The conflicts and the violence and the insecurity that arise out of intersectional disadvantages. Mm. Yeah, I, I think that's... And inequalities. Yeah, um, I think that's a very interesting point because when you look at human security intersectionally, then you will also be able to look at problems that don't come under traditional notions of security. But it's the whole point of human security mm. is that security, I mean, the broad initial definition that people were using was freedom from fear and freedom from want. Mm. Freedom from fear and freedom from want are everything. Mm. It is freedom from fear that we won't have any water after July mm. and fear that somebody will come and get you because you use the wrong well. Mm. Yeah. It's the spectrum of human fear. Mm. It is everything that makes a human life vulnerable, mm. puts a human being at risk. Would you say one of the objectives of gender and international relations would be to analyze where your spectrum of fear arises? It could be if that's your question mm. on a particular topic. Okay. But I don't think, I think the gender is a framework or a lens rather than an actual topic. I mean, it's mm. the way you approach things. And um, over the years, and I think I said this to you earlier when mm. we were chatting that, you know, I don't come into this with 17 courses in gender theory or feminist theory. Feminism for me was a lived experience. It mm. was a politics that I inherited and learned within my family and with my family as they went out mm. um, to do activist work. So I bring that politics into my international relations and security training. Mm. And so going back and looking at some of the more... Um, complex jargon around gender. Mm. I think to me, it means something very simple. And I like to say that here because mm. I think uh, sometimes when people first encounter mm. technical literature, mm. they get completely turned off and they miss the actual point, which is simply to make a commitment to consider all points of view, to okay. see everything. Mm. You know, when I pick up a problem, whatever the problem is, how many podcasts feature gender topics mm. or how many international relations podcasts are there in India? I make a commitment to ask how many women run them, how many women produce them, how many are in studios that are owned by women, how many of them ask questions around gender issues. Mm. Is this just women or is this other gender minorities? I make that commitment. Mm. It's the commitment to see the commitment to ask, the commitment to not make assumptions about who knows what mm. above everything else. So it does not matter what the topic is. Mm. It's your commitment to how you look at it, what you bring to it. Is it a commitment to being inclusive, to listening, to thinking intersectionally? Mm. Or is it to add women and stir? Yeah, which brings me to the idea of tokenism, right? When mm -hmm. particularly in international relations, you will have manners, but you'll have one woman who's sort of on stage. Now, there are two ways to look at it. A lot of uh, colleagues of mine used to say, you know what, tokenism is fine because at least there's a woman 
on the stage. But the way I look at it is, I don't want to be on the stage because I'm a woman. I want to be on stage because I do good work. How do you look at that? It's a good question. Um, at a certain point, a platform is a platform. I'm not talking about the early stage of your career where you're, you know, well, well a platform is a platform mm -hmm. there too. Uh, but sometimes if I'm the only woman on a panel, mm. I'm the only one who's going to say certain things. Mm. But the burden of always having to be the gender lens, mm. of always having to speak for women, mm. that's an unfair one. But if I don't do it, who will? So I still belong to a generation where I think there are few enough of us mm. that we can't, I won't be that picky, but I will make a nasty comment now and say, oh, so you could only find one of me. Next time I'll give you five more. Mm. I might say that. Mm. But I think that that's, um, but if you don't get a foot in the door, then who's going to listen to you complain? I mean, it's really, but it depends on the context. See, there are certain places where manners are completely unconscionable. Like a university mm. has a seminar and only the male students speak, then that's utterly unacceptable because clearly the enrollment is in the other mm. direction. But then I think that, you know, as you move, as it gets more rarefied until women fill those ranks, mm. it's harder, but it's not difficult to find women. And there are plenty of rosters of qualified women. And if you Google the numbers of women who do podcasts, who mm. blog, who do op-eds, mm. who tweet about certain topics you can certainly find the same level of knowledge as you can among random men. So I think at the bo at bottom, it's genius. Choosing to be the one woman in a room is a personal decision based on your own calculation of cost-benefit, mm. value of the platform, you know, who you want to meet in that room. But then I think not having more than one woman is sheer laziness. Yeah, I agree with you. And I think it's a lot easier for me at the end of the day. International relations is a lot more inclusive now when I'm starting out than perhaps when you were starting out. How was it for you when you were beginning your When I started out, there weren't even men. There was only Jadavpur and JNU. There weren't any other IR programs I knew about in India. So I had to do my master's abroad. Hmm. But um, now it looks... The field is just booming here and everybody's writing and everybody's publishing. Sometimes, you know, it feels like we're the Rip Van Winkle generation. At one moment, we were too young. Mm. And then all the all the big gudges were male and over 70. And then in a flash, we're too old because there are 20s and 30s everywhere. And they're coming out of all of these schools that are burgeoning. So I think the field has changed um, quantitatively and qualitatively mm. in the last 20 years. Yeah, and something else that we were talking about earlier is that when you're starting out in international relations, and I got this advice a lot, they were like, okay, you're a woman who's working on security, don't look at gender. Don't be the woman who talks about women. You know, don't touch it with a barge pole, just do other work. I, I don't know, would this be advice that you would give me or your younger self? I don't know. I would not have had the choice. We began talking about women because we began noticing that we were absent. Mm. 
very memorably for me, despite the feminist upbringing, we were at a two-week security arms control and technology workshop in Pakistan. Uh, ten Indians, ten Pakistanis, five Chinese. And in the evening, the Indian and Pakistani women, some of us would hang out together and, you know, talk about life and all the rest. The day was about something else. The evening conversations had completely different concerns. Even when we were talking about security, we were talking about different things. The disconnect mm. between the conversations of the day and the conversations of the evening was so striking that that, in a sense, got us thinking about security, got me thinking about security in different ways. I began to write about those conversations a lot more. And then a few years later at another workshop like that, another two-week thing, several of us who became friends there went on to do a book together, mm. uh, which was called Women's Security South Asia, which brought together the things that we thought mm. were security problems. Like? For example, what is one of the first things you learn as a young little girl? You know, come back home before it's dark. Yeah, by the Don't sunset come is And take that route when you come from your friend's house. Mm. There are street lights there. Mm. Right yes. there. Yeah. Right there. Have you ever come across this in a security studies class? No. Now you might, because enough of us have been pushing and saying gender-based violence is a mm. form of insecurity. Mm. But in a situation where security was about war, peace, mm. missile control, and so on, you didn't have this, you had no human beings. Mm. There were no human beings in this conversation. So we began to try and fill the picture, put human beings and human experiences. A friend of mine wrote about thalassemia being very common and what would be the larger social economic consequences of that. Uh, somebody else wrote about how, uh, Sudha Ramachandran wrote about how tigers leaders, women leaders, got to do a whole lot of things with decision making. Mm. There was still a glass ceiling. So we looked at women insecurity, women and security, women and insecurity, the insecurity of women from a whole series of lived experiences. And that's really where the first challenges to the field began. Mm. So we began by thinking about women because nobody else was doing it. I would say to women now, if you don't talk about gender, mm. If you are not gender sensitive, forget talk about gender, if you're not gender sensitive, if you don't speak for women, mm. if you don't acknowledge gender inequality in your profession, who will? But on the other hand, don't confine yourself to one area of expertise and getting isolated, getting tucked into a corner will happen very easily because male colleagues will look at a project and say, oh, she's there. No, I never call her. Let's give her the gender chapter. Mm. So then you take the decision you take on that manner. Mm. You say, okay, I'll write this because if I don't, some man will mm. or nobody will. I don't know which one is worse. Uh, well, a gender sensitive man might do a much better job that, that than me. True. But uh, it's also important for your own confidence to keep other expertise going, mm. to also be able to speak in other conversations, mm. to keep reading widely, to continue to teach broadly. But this is, again, a challenge in the field that we have not resolved. When I say the 
teach the mainstream courses why aren't those courses integrating gender mm. when i say supposing international trade flows mm. are a male stream ir topic mm. why isn't there a gender component there mm. so in in it your challenge is twofold it's to keep one foot in the male stream mm. and to keep one foot in the gender politics of your field mm. and it's a double burden i mean that is horrible it, yeah <laughs> it's you know that like the burdens never cease no the things we want women to do no they don't and i mean i i think it's very important to do this because particularly for younger women because it would sort of be a disservice to women who came before them to not continue this commitment to gender not yeah. open up more spaces that have been closed before uh, because that momentum is rolling so if you don't build on it then it sort of and sometimes bust. when older feminist professionals hear younger women talk mm. with a sense of entitlement about how things are easy or how there's no gender discrimination we don't know whether to be annoyed mm. or to really despair because if they are not aware of this given everything that is available to mm. them all the sensitization that could be theirs if they are not aware at 22 or mm. 25 life is going to get very tough for them at 55 that's true and i think but that's not a problem that's specifically ir uh, no. i i see women everywhere going oh yes. but we're equal if you want to be equal yes. then don't be so affected by these issues yes uh, and absolutely and i right. don't know how to explain to them that i'm not you know a personal uh, victim or i don't uh, i don't take these issues up in a sense in courts because uh, i'm a crusader of sorts right? you're absolutely writing across the board it's very hard to talk about gender politics and gender inequality without seeming somehow like a spoiler mm. or uh, or petulant mm. yeah. or just you know a victim of your a victim by choice mm. but in fact these are structures that are real and that are out there and the advantage that people with academic training have is that we have learned to step a little bit outside the frame and point to the frame mm. you know i can also tell you okay but let me bite back how much you're irritating me mm. and if you will give me a minute i will show you how this frame works mm. let me tell you how patriarchy is a problem for everybody mm. whether or not you have this particular you have experienced this particular discrimination or that particular disadvantage this is a problem for all of us yeah you know uh, the problem is also i mean i don't know if it's a problem but because women's experiences are so diverse and you mm-hmm. have different kinds of feminism mm-hmm. uh it's just sort of the way that those feminisms deal with each other were not able to find common ground but in my journey and in your journey mm. the fight between other feminisms doesn't matter it's your thought process and your decision your conscience mm. your own understanding that determines your path it is not really important you don't have to declare yourself mm. this or that but you have to be a certain way and you have to be committed to being that way in everything that you do and that itself is hard yeah I mean I think if you just sort of reduce all of these mm-hmm. feminisms and all of this jargon to what you said earlier about just you know a commitment to being more open to mm-hmm. ask questions mm-hmm. about where 
people are i think mm-hmm. that itself would sort of give you a framework to mm-hmm. just look at problems mm-hmm. in the context of disasters for example mm-hmm. it means looking at all victims of disaster so just because i do gender doesn't mean i only look at women mm-hmm. you know now we've already learned about women who couldn't swim women who got trapped in their saris etc etc mm-hmm. but what about all the men mm-hmm. who were suddenly left with to cope with families that they had never looked after mm-hmm. you know who were doing housework men who were traumatized by loss but had never learned the emotional vocabulary to articulate it's when you make a commitment to look at gender whether in war or in disaster or in any ordinary situation you look at everybody mm. and their particular story you know yeah and i think that's the beauty of gender i mean a lot of people think it's sort of ranting about how women are disadvantaged but the way i look at gender is to say all of us are sort of suffering because mm-hmm. of systemic structural inequalities mm-hmm. and what is the way out of it mm-hmm. how can we make all of our lives better mm-hmm. uh but i also don't want to then slip into this uh what people say you know i'm not a feminist i'm a humanist and that is a statement that really irks me because for me that the same thing mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. so it's just I don't know. Ways. Well, have you read that uh, quotation by Dale Spender? She says women have not fought wars, etc., etc. Mm. They have fought for better labor conditions, better mm. wages, maternity care, and so mm. on and so forth. So, if you're not a feminist, I want to know why. It's a paraphrase. <laughs> She puts it better than that. It, But really, yeah. why aren't you a feminist? I want to know. It, exactly, and yeah, I mean, at the end of the day. you're able to argue these things because mm-hmm. you have an education which would have been denied to you because you have rights that mm-hmm. would have been denied to you um and yeah it just it seems to Or be a very you couldn't finish school because you kept fainting because you weren't getting enough iron in your diet post puberty so you failed your ssc once you failed it twice and that sealed your fate for life yeah or you, you just know, weren't I mean, allowed to complete it because it's, you had it's housework. a it's a snowballing mm. journey of disadvantage no yeah i it, mean if you think of all the things that might not have been mm. in the life of any girl mm. it's much longer than what actually happens to her that is true and i think i'm but that's really awkwardly put but no but i completely agree i think you know all things equal feminism has made all our lives better if i don't know i, I but that's how mm-hmm. i feel mm-hmm. every day i'm very grateful oh, for i agree uh coming back to sort of academia and mm-hmm. sort of the s- structural problems with it we know that there is a problem with sort of citing women we know that women get mm-hmm. cited lesser we know that their uh, work is uh, less often in curriculum uh, you know apart from just you know there will be a gender component sometimes in most curriculum yeah, one, these one week one week yeah. um, or one class sometimes but if you don't read it's okay it won't come in the exam <laughs> exactly <laughs> it'll come as optional question <laughs> but how do you uh, deal with that how do you deal with sort of citing more women's work with hiring more women how do we make women present on the field we simply do the opposite we start citing women we start reading women we start taking women seriously i retweet anything that any of my women colleagues write whether i agree with it or not you know i routinely retweet i routinely share because i think if we don't amplify each other's scholarship who's going to do it uh including making a point of seeking out and including a variety of voices when you assign reading 
is very important. Of course, hiring decisions. If for some ridiculous reason you actually can't find enough women candidates, make sure you get lots of guest lecturers. Make women visible on campus. You know, screen their films. Do book club readings around their work. I, you know, I don't think. All these things sound like excuses to me. I don't even see what the impediments are, mm. because it, now there is a critical mass of women scholars who are available to teach, to write, to be experts, to be on those shouting TV panels. And there are rosters. There are lists that have been made mm. with women who are more than qualified to speak. But the on thing is, also the question of qualified only applies to women. I mean, okay, that's that subject of another podcast, perhaps. <laughs> that is, but I completely agree. Here's my last question for you: um, If someone wants to look a little more at uh, gender and international relations, uh, what reading would you recommend? What resources would you recommend that they go through? I would have anybody start with Cynthia and Lou's Bananas, Beaches and Bases. It's a simple, accessible, erudite overview. It opens doors that you can then follow through yourself in the real world or through other reading, and it's delightfully written. Um, so I would definitely say start with Cynthia Enlow. In the region, there's a library of women scholars in South Asia. Uh, the writings of people like Rubina Segal or Sabagul Khatak in Pakistan. In uh, Bangladesh, Amna Mosin or Meghna Kohatakurta. In Nepal, people like Bandana Rana, uh, where they have written, usually for NGOs, but they're writing. In Sri Lanka, there are, I just could reel off numbers, Radhika Kumaraswamy, Malati Dialvis, uh, the Women in Media Collective. There's fantastic feminist writing coming out of Sri Lanka. Sunila, mm. um, Kumari Jayavartana, who wrote the classic feminism and nationalism in the third world. And in India, um, well, in Maldives, there's my friend Farah Faisal, Farah Didi, who's now ambassador in the UK. And there's, um, in India, there's people from the older generation like Kamla Basin, who've written on partition, for example, not written on international relations itself. But then when you start reading feminist work, this is the thing. The inside-outside doors vanish. 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 The domestic international mm. blurs. The private-public blurs. So the introduction of a feminist politics and the gender lens actually starts blurring distinctions and complicating images and stories. So there's a whole host of people that you can read. There is... As opposed to 30 years ago, there is no shortage of literature. And um, you should just start where you are. Start where you are, I think, is a great <laughs> note for the end of this episode. Thank you so much, Sarna. Thank you for having me. This has been fun. <laughs> so that brings us to the end of this episode of States of Anarchy. Gender is pervasive. You can't run away from it how much ever you try. So I suggest you read up instead. I've attached a bunch of resources for you in the episode description. If you have any comments or questions, you can reach out to me on Twitter at the rate Hamsini H or on Instagram at the rate States of Anarchy. If you haven't subscribed already, you should. Just go to the IVM podcast app or wherever you get your podcast from and click on subscribe. 
we'll be back next tuesday Hi listeners, we at Aditya Birla Sun Life Mutual Fund have come up with a special podcast series called MF 101 in collaboration with Bloomberg Quint. MF 101 is an informative series that will help you understand the recipe behind mutual fund investments. And what's more, it's coming from the chefs of the mutual fund buffet table, from the very own fund managers and analysts who are the manufacturers of the funds that help you realize your investment goals. New episodes out every Monday. You can listen to the show on the IBM Podcast app or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm DJ, one of the presenters of the Edges and Sledges Cricket Podcast. I'm based in London and host the podcast along with my friend from school, Varun, who's based in Singapore, and his brother Ashwin, who's based in the US. We've all been massive fans of Indian cricket all our lives. and despite living in three different time zones and having pretty busy professional lives we decided to start our own cricket podcast in march 2018 after putting out 59 episodes on our own we were delighted to join ivm in may 2019 becoming the first pre-existing podcast to be picked up by india's largest podcast network we've chatted with some awesome people had some fantastic cricketing conversations along the way But the main reason we do this every week is to have fun discussing the same cricket topics and issues that you guys are talking about every day in your living rooms. We're fans, not experts, so expect us to be honest. We really hope you decide to join us every week on the podcast.